Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi and welcome everyone to our latest criminal case. In the early 1930s in Ontario, a news item unlike any other made the headlines and rightly so. The birth of quintuplets was welcome like an unprecedented event, capturing media attention and also reached the political arena. They were named Cecile, Annette, Emily, Marie, and Yvonne, five identical sisters who were born prematurely and the whole world was certain that they would not survive. Yet the twists and turns that the lives of Dion quintuplets would take is worthy of a modern-day fairy tale, taken from their parents at birth, exhibited like a slideshow of attraction, forced to live in a protective cocoon and idolized all over the world. The sisters earned the province of Ontario close to $500 million Canadian. Eventually, the quintuplets were sought after by cosmetics companies and even Hollywood. But after the excitement and fame of their childhood came to a decline of adulthood, shamelessly manipulated and overexploited, they struggled to start their careers because they were no longer marketable. Eventually, the Dion quintuplets fell into obscurity and experienced their share of personal tragedies. Once they were starlets, but soon they returned to being just ordinary women, forced to work like everyone else for their survival. Find out more about the unique history of these sisters, from their humble beginnings to the glamour of Hollywood and finally to the obscurity of lives that once more became all too ordinary. It was the early 1930s. In New York, the Wall Street financial crisis had destroyed everything in its path, bringing poverty to the wretched victims of a once-proud America that saw its capitalist system crumble to ruins. In Canada, the wise little sisters to the United States of America, the crisis also wrecked havoc much less drama, to be sure, but still quite difficult. People grew weary of constant suffering and worrying and sought distractions to help them forget a moment the harshness of daily life that had grown too far too perversive and all too real. And what better way to do that than to watch the ugliness of those more unfortunate than oneself? This was during the heights of the age of human zoos, spectacles that were shameful as they were grotesque, but perfectly suited for the time, yet still adored by spectators of all ages. In these particular kinds of zoos, which included their own background decor accompanied by jazz music, victims of different diseases that were still unknown to medicine and that resulted in multiple appearances were displayed for the world to see. Each of them performed thematic routines, some of them spoke unknown languages and claimed that they came from caves in the Himalayas or from the bottom of the oceans or the jungles when in reality they were born in disadvantaged neighborhoods in New York, Paris or London. 
They had names like the bearded lady, the strong man, elephant man, tattooed woman, snake woman, or munchkin. Dwarves, who usually dress up as infants. But the biggest attraction was CME's twins, joined together by a common limb that shrewd circus owners were able to charge audiences top dollars just to see. Why? For the simple reason that twinship with all its mysterious and mystical implications inherently made a highly profitable spectacle. But for some of these performers, life out of the spotlight was often very miserable and many sank into alcoholism, drugs and other addictions as a way to ease the frustrations caused by their appearances and the over-exploitation they were subjected to. Conversely, some of them managed to turn their handicap into an advantage by breaking free of their managers to have their own careers. The very luckiest of them had even succeeded in earning a fortune, getting married and starting their own families. It was during this period of economic crisis that an unprecedented event took place in Ontario, more specifically in the town of Corbeil, a rural area where a few farming families from Quebec and Gasp lived. It was May 28, 1934 at the Dion family's small farm. It was hardly what one might call flourishing, but their modest home was built entirely of wood and rested on stilts. The interior was also very basic, just a living room and beds arranged around the fireplace. Olivia, who was in her thirties, was already a father to five children. He worked as a laborer in one of the neighboring farms. Despite the economic crisis that forced many people to leave home to try find work elsewhere, the Dion family always had enough to eat. Even though they had already lived in the mainly Anglophone region for 10 years, the Dion's and their children had difficulty speaking English fluently. Moreover, their neighbors called them Frenchie, an epithet often given to Francophone Canadians. The couple's five children were all close in age. Two years earlier, Oliva and his wife had lost a sixth child who succumbed to a devastating case of smallpox. At this time, Elzer, the mother, was pregnant for the seventh time and was expected to give birth soon. The household chores that she had once been able to do with ease had now become impossible. She had the feeling that this delivery would not be like the others. She had already spent the first three months of her pregnancy completely bedridden, something which had never happened to her in the past. During this difficult period, her children were left to fend for themselves, often playing around in the mud and eating canned beans. But she considered herself fortunate to have an understanding husband who didn't drink, didn't gamble, and didn't complain if his house wasn't tidy. Sometimes a neighbor who saw how overworked the family was came to lend a hand in order to give some relief to the mistress of the house. She made meals that could last two days, did the laundry, and bathed the children. Elzor Legros and Oliva Dion had met in Corbell and she was barely 16 years old when they were married. Soon, their kids came one after another. The husband and wife, originally from Gasp and raised as Catholics, managed to fit in perfectly in their community where they were also very highly regarded. Oliva had a reputation of being a wise man who was a hard worker with a good head on his shoulders. Elzer's first contraction started when she was hanging the laundry outside. She panicked because she was not yet due. She had to call her husband right away. The baby was about to arrive. Oliva got into his van and headed straight for the village where he picked up two midwives, Miss Legros and Miss Labelle. The town's doctors would join them later should his assistance be necessary. The delivery was expected to be difficult, long and challenging. Dr. Alan Defoe's presence proved to be more than just necessary and Oliva got back into the van to pick him up. The children were sent to a neighbor's house so that they would not see their mother giving birth. The two midwives delivered a first baby, but that was not the end of it. Then there was another, and another. Mrs. Legros and Mrs. Labelle passed the babies in their arms very carefully. They were very fragile. 
Dr. Dafoe initially thought that they were triplets, but soon one of the birth attendants exclaimed, Doctor, doctor, there's another one peeking its head out. Indeed, a fourth baby was soon followed by a fifth. The doctor and the two midwives were astounded. It was finally over. There were five premature babies, five little girls weighing barely 500 grams each. It was a miracle that they were still alive. Mrs. Legros and Mrs. LaBelle gently laid them down in a little bassinet and placed them beside their mother. As Dr. Defoe washed his hands, he announced the news to the father. Congratulations, Oliva. That's quite a nice nursery you have there. The rest of the household soon shared in the amazement. Oliva Dion ran to tell the news to his other children who impatiently ran to gather around their new little sisters. They could not take their eyes off them. It was an event unlike anything they'd seen before. Usually for as far as they could remember, Mama always cried the whole night and a little stork brought them a baby wrapped in an old white sheet. But this time, they wondered how the stork could have brought all five babies to Corbeil. They must have been very heavy to carry. The other children were fascinated and began to bet that they could hold all the babies together in the palm of their hands. Before he left, the doctor took the father aside. These babies are premature and they need to be taken by car to the hospital in Montreal. But a long trip could be fatal to them. You can count yourself lucky if they make it through the week. Do you mean that they won't survive? They may not unless they are put into an incubator as soon as possible. I don't want to give you any false hope. Their mother needs to prepare for that possibility. Well then, what should I do? Should I call the priest? I think your wife would agree. The babies were blessed that same evening by Father Alphonse Mortier, in case they should die within the next few hours. Then Mrs. Legras, the midwife, made sure that they were fed with the help of a pipette. Although their prognosis was still uncertain, the next morning, the babies were still alive. Delighted, Oliva Dion announced the news to the whole town of Corbeil. Five babies, you must be joking. I swear there are five of them even smaller than my hand. Come see them with your own eyes if you don't believe me. Oliva was so overexcited that he felt like he could climb the roof of the church to announce the news. In fact, the parish newsletter was the first to relay the news of the happy event in their latest dispatch. In Corbeil, we would like to welcome our five latest arrivals. The news traveled so quickly that even residents on the most remote farms had already heard. There was amazement, astonishment, and curiosity everywhere. How was it possible for a woman to give birth to five babies at the same time? That was unheard of. On the small Dion family farm, the five babies were provided with basic care just enough to keep them alive. Since their parents were unable to place them in an incubator, their bassinet was constantly placed beside the fireplace to keep them warm and they were fed with large amounts of goat milk. A few days later, their father brought them to the town hall and gave them their first names. Annette Lillian Marie, Cecile Murray Imelda, Emily Murray Jean, Marie Rima Alma, and Yvonne Etulda Murray. In an instant, the family had grown considerably large and Oliva planned to build an additional room for the girls to live in when they got older. But two days later, three reporters from Ottawa arrived at the Dion family doorstep. They wanted to see the babies and take their photo. Oliva grew angry and unceremoniously chased them away. His children were not circus freaks or creatures from another world. But that was only the beginning because shortly after the reporters came the showmen. And not just any showmen. They came from Chicago and wanted to take the babies with them to be exhibited at a fair. Oliva and Elsa Dion could not believe their eyes. Make no mistake, we're not charlatans from some circus who travel around in trailers and shoplift just to be able to eat. No, ladies and gentlemen, we're from Chicago. Yes, Chicago. They call me Mr. Fritz and Mr. Edward here has just finished a tour of the Universal Exhibition in Paris. He even met the President of the Republic in person and shook his hand. 
I'm Mr. Edward, and in all modesty, I confirm everything my colleague here has just said. You gentlemen from Chicago are wasting your time. Our babies are not for sale. For sale? For sale? Oh, so soon with the big words. Come on now, young man. Who said anything about selling? You must be mistaken. We're proper gentlemen. Your little girls will have all the same rights and privileges as we do. They'll have their own rooms especially designed for them and a wet nurse to see their every needs. We'll place them in incubators and they'll get as much as milk to drink as they want, added one of the showmen. It's useless to try to insist you can't have our children. Undaunted, the two took a look around the house. They saw a beam ravaged by humidity, a blackened stove, and a bed strewn with used sheets, but mainly they saw five children with smeared faces wearing hand-me-down clothes jumping all over the place. Let's be honest, in the long run, it will be very hard for you to feed everyone in this lovely little troop. Mr. Dion, three young lads, two other little ladies, not to mention the babies. My husband has always made sure that we never wanted anything, the children and me, said Elzer, with her pride wounded. I don't deny that at all, my dear lady, but these days children cost money whether you realize it or not. If the children were to come with us, you would have a lot less to worry about. And then think about the future, added the associate. Think of all the benefits. They could become wealthy celebrities and then you'll realize that you made the right choice. Yes, riches and the rest of you won't be left out either. Oliva and his wife, overwhelmed by the constant stream of words from the two men, had trouble getting a word in edgewise. And besides, Mr. Fritz was already taking out a piece of paper. What's that? asked Oliva, already on the alert. This is their contact. Just take a look at what is written on the masthead. The Chicago Century of Progress Exhibition. You see, it's not just another lot of empty words. And it's signed by the owner of the exhibition himself. Now, the only signature that's missing is yours. The terms specify $70 a month and the baby bottles, clothing, medication and accommodations are at our discretion. We'll be touring New York, London, Milan, Berlin, Amsterdam, and Paris. Gentlemen, Paris, added Mr. Edward. Sign here, Mr. Dion, and I promise you that you've made the best deal in your whole life. But I suspect that your wife has something to add. But Elzer simply lowered her head and wiped away a tear. Oliver Dion grabbed the contract written in English and read it carefully. The two circus men had their eyes riveted on them. We have a deal, he finally declared. The babies must be ready in two weeks which will give them time to build up some strength before starting their journey to the United States. While the idea may seem bizarre or perhaps even shock to today's readers, displaying premature babies in fairs was a common practice at that time, though parents like the Dion's did so reluctantly. Visitors would buy tickets to observe the babies in their incubators. The money collected would go towards feeding and clothing the babies, but would primarily protect them until they are no longer needed in the incubators. It's important to note that some exhibition owners were involved in shady businesses where children would later be sold to rich couples and sometimes even to other circuses. For Mr. and Mrs. Dion, that night proved to be long. After having put all their children to bed, they found themselves face to face, unable to look at each other in the eyes. You signed without even thinking about it. All this is your fault. Well, if you didn't agree, you should have said something while those two clowns were still there. How could I when you didn't even give me a chance to speak? I didn't see you put too much fuss when I signed the bloody contract. All you ever think about is money. Oh, yeah? The quarrel continued before finally ending up with a compromise. They would rescind the contract. The deal was broken the following day. With the contract terminated, the Carnies were extremely upset and left without glancing at Oliva Dion. He, however, was greatly relieved and came back home to tell his wife the good news. That's it. They're gone. I tore up that bloody paper. Our children will stay with us. We must celebrate. 
But the news of the so-called sale of the babies traveled quickly among the townspeople of Corbeil. In fact, the two carnies before taking the boat to New York had gone to such lengths to spread the rumor. One morning was all they needed in order for everyone to know. What heartless people! And they called themselves parents? Imagine selling those poor babies to be exhibited like toys to strangers. Shameful! And that wife, she's good at popping out children every year, but not so good at taking care of them. What about the husband? His greed personified. My husband would rather kill himself than give up one of our kids. Mine too. Over the days that followed, the topic of the sale of the Dion quintuplets was on everybody's lips. They speculated, criticized, and generally dragged the parents through the mud. Oliva was practically shunned by the grocer who refused to address him when he went to do his shopping. When he went to the blacksmiths to shoe his horse, the men turned their backs on him. At Mass, on Sunday, even the priest expressed his contempt by reading a long passage on the greed of those blinded by money, which was the ultimate sin for a Catholic. Everywhere they went, the Dion's were unwelcomed, maligned, and condemned. Fairly soon, the case caught the attention of the government of the province of Ontario, which immediately sent a commission to Dion's farm with orders to investigate the living conditions of the five newborns. They were disastrous. The mother did not have enough milk to feed them. They lacked warm clothes for the winter. Their other brothers and sisters were left to fend for themselves like savages. The father was incompetent, a brawler, and a violent alcoholic. This was not an appropriate environment to raise children, especially little girls. Mitchell Heapburn, the premier of the province, ordered the children to be taken from the parents' custody. Within a few days, following a speedy trial, Annette Cecile, Emily, Marie, and Yvonne were taken from their cribs on the family farm and sent to the home of Dr. Alan Duffo, who had brought them into the world and where they stayed for a year. The premier himself ensured that they were fully covered by public funds. The following year, they were sent to a sanatorium where they remained until they were two years old. When they were three, they were declared wards of the crown, a privilege that would enjoy until they reached the age of majority. A substantial sum was spent to build a nursery specially designed to respond to their needs. Domestic staff and nurses were also hired to take care of them on a full-time basis. Nevertheless, the five little girls were not permitted to go out into the street and they were only allowed to get some fresh air for a short five-minute walk in the hospital park and were always accompanied by the nurses. A new name for the five twins began to be used, Quintuplets. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Arousing more and more interest and astonishment, a large fence was later built around their living room windows in order to make them more visible from the main street to passerby and other curiosity seekers. 
The vision of these five little faces adorned with identical brown curls was something like out of the fantastic, mysterious, and extraordinary. Was it really possible that they existed? As they grew, so did the curiosity about them. Soon, it was not unheard to see crowds outside the chain-link fence of the Daffo Hospital when it was time for the girls to take their walk on the grounds. The province of Ontario began to realize the potential for profits. Ever since they blew out the candles of their fourth birthday, the popularity of the quintuplets only continued to grow. In the streets, women cried with joy to see them so tall, in such good health, and so well taken care of. Many even dreamt of having multiple kids and wondered if there was some kind of miracle drug that could help them achieve multiple pregnancies. Like a good businessman, Premier Mitchell Heapburn decided to do things in a big way. From then on, if people wanted to see the twins, they would have to pay. Surprisingly, and defying all expectations, tickets began to be sold on the very same day that the new rule was established. Soon, ticket booths were set up so that people could pay for their admission as well as buy a drink or some ice. The quintuplets were shown twice a day from their chain-covered windows, a showing in the morning at around 11 a.m. and another in the afternoon at 4 p.m. The rest of the time they spent playing, learning to read and write, and having naps. They had no contact with their biological parents, who for their part, was unaware of where they were and what they had become. The only maternal figures they knew were their nannies and their nurses from the hospital. Moreover, the five little girls were treated as if they were one and the same, a small group that did everything collectively, who ate the same thing, brought the same thing, saw the same thing and played with the same dolls. This technique was intended to erase their obviously different personalities, which could only damage the prefabricated and watered-down image that they were supposed to project. Anna Dion would later recall in their autobiography that, of course, we all had the same round face, the same little dimples in the cheeks when we smiled and we all had the same thick brown hair. Yet there were a thousand other things that differentiated us from each other. All that was required was to pay a little bit of attention, to take some time to look at us individually rather than group us all together after just one glance, which no one ever did. Before we were Yvonne, Marie, Annette, Emily, or Cecile, we were the little girls, the twins, or the quints. The popularity of the quintuplets spread throughout Canada, and soon carloads of tourists began to arrive simultaneously to park outside the Daffo Hospital. They were even permitted to take photographs from a distance. It was the start of what would in a few months be the theme park known as Quintland. No fewer than 6,000 people would line up every day just to be able to spend a few minutes watching Annette, Cecile, Marie, Emily, and Yvonne play with their dolls under the watchful eyes of their nannies. Soon, a line of merchandise emerged including items such as tissues, calendars, dolls, soaps, and little bottles of cologne featuring the five sisters' faces on the label. The business went so well that sometimes the demand for these items exceeded the supply. In the early 1940s, Quintland Park became so popular that it started to overshadow other Canadian tourist attractions including Niagara Falls and its popularity far outranked that of the famous American exhibition, the Chicago World's Fair. Now, it was not just 6,000 but 3 million people who would arrive each day from all over the country and even from England and the United States to visit the area and have a chance to catch a glimpse in the distance of the Dion sisters who were so cute in their miniature clothes like Scarlett O'Hara. There were no limits to the insanity at Quintland. At the entrance, there were stands that sold fertility stones for 25 cents for each female visitor. A security system worth protecting today's rock stars was put in place. Each day, barely after Quintlet's gate had even opened, visitors rushed in and quickly herded like livestock by law enforcement officers to different viewing areas behind the bay window. 
Then, they held their breath as they waited for Annette, Cecile, Marie, and Yvonne to make an appearance in the company of their nannies. At the request of the park's owner, they even started doing thematic showings where the little girls were forced to memorize by heart a short choreography to do in front of the completely stunned and speechless tourists from behind their bay windows. Just like puppets, the quintuplets raised their arms, spun around, took each other by the hand, and did a little dance before finally bowing to their admirers reverently. Often in order for them not to be intimidated, a system was used that so they could neither see or hear the people while they were dancing or playing. With the increase in demand, a huge infrastructure was developed that could accommodate all the visitors. Logistics were implemented in order to take people from ports and railway stations to the park. New hotels and restaurants began to pop up everywhere, and the image of the quintuplets decked out in their little blue dresses made hearts melt and cause quills of amazement. Quite ironically, the same people who had harshly criticized Oliva Dion and his wife's behavior just a few years earlier because they wanted to sell their daughters to a circus were now the same people who came to admire them and take their photographs behind the bars of their golden prison. As a result of Queensland's enormous success, every year the province of Ontario earned close to $50 million Canadian, a fantastic sum. But beyond the excitement and fame, what was life for the Dion sisters? They were considered miracles because they were from multiple births and they were premature. As a result, their health became a major concern for their nannies and for Mitchell Hepburn, who personally made sure that they had everything they needed at their disposal. It should be noted that they had become an extremely profitable brand and they absolutely had to be protected. Yet from all the revenues that Quintlin generated, the twins never saw any of it. In fact, their image was being used again and again on brands like well-known Quaker Oats meal, Kellogg's cereals, Velveta processed cheese, Kraft mayonnaise, and even on bottles of Avon bubble bath. Everyone was beating down the door to use their image because they were aware of the tremendous marketing potential it had. The fame of the Dion sisters had grown so immensely that now even Hollywood's little childhood sweetheart, the famous Shirley Temple, was about to be dethroned by the quintuplets, which greatly annoyed producers from Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer as well as Temple's manager. But at the same time, the big Hollywood moguls began to get idea, and why not, after all, if they had a theme park in their honor at just five years old, then they could certainly star in a feature film. Now, there was no stopping Quintlin's owner. The quintuplets absolutely had to make their way to Hollywood to show older, powerful movie producers that they could also star in films from Los Angeles studios. Joined by their two nannies, the little girls left to conquer the land of Uncle Sam. Having always grown up in a protective bubble far from the dangers of the outside world, they were literally projected like adult actresses into the stressful world that was Hollywood. A world that was flashy but also quite cruel and remorseless, where the competition was fierce for people to climb to the top while also pushing others down. Furthermore, producers and directors at the time were not known for their compassion or their humanity. Having little regard for their young age, they tormented, scolded and abused the girls during filming. The confused girls often cried while on set and expressed their desire to go back home to Ontario. After a great deal of effort and patience, they managed to complete four Hollywood films. The Country Doctor, Reunion, Five of a Kind, and finally, Quintupletland, which reflected their personal history and their childhood lives. These films were also released when the talkies and the Technicolor becoming prevalent in the cinema. Their work in the movies was quite successful and the young girls won the hearts of the American public, eclipsing all the other child actors of the period. The year 1943 marked a turning point in the tumultuous lives of the five sisters because their father, Oliva Dion, finally managed to regain sole custody of the girls after a lengthy battle with the courts. 
The government of Ontario agreed to grant him his right, believing that it would be best not for just the girls, but for the rest of their biological family. The quintuplets, now nine years old, were forced to say goodbye to the only mothers they had ever known, their nannies. They had dreaded meeting their real parents, whom they considered a couple of mere strangers. It would also be the first time that the little girls would get to know the other members of their family that they hadn't met yet. They left their nursery and headed for a huge mansion with 20 rooms where they would move in with their parents and their other five brothers and sisters. This particular mansion was purchased with their salaries, but since they were still too young to understand the value of money, they were led to believe that the house was a gift that their father had made for them. The first meeting between the quintuplets and their parents was far from warm and welcoming, and the barriers that spread it would never really be broken. Annette Cecile, Emily, Marie, and Yvonne continued to live as they had in the hospital nursery where they grew up, as a separate entity from the rest of the family. Things did not fare any better with their brothers and sisters, and it was not too long before they started fighting amongst themselves. But it was with their mother that they had the most difficulty getting along. Elzer Dion, who probably had a case of the baby blues when they were born and most certainly didn't have enough time to forge a bond with them, never showed the little girls any affection or maternal love. Quite the opposite. She would often punish them, criticize them, bully them mercilessly and give them household chores that they were unable to complete. Look here, you little princess. When I was your age, I was already helping my mother in the kitchen. I did everything around the house. With Oliva Dion, things were even worse. Later, they would even confess that they had sexually abused them throughout their adolescence. It was a trauma that they had gone through privately and that they couldn't talk to anyone for fears of reprisal. Yvonne would later state that, as soon as we heard his footsteps in the hallway, each of us ran to our dolls, which we would hold in our arms as if to protect ourselves. In fact, their parents even accused them of ruining their lives, of creating problems for them with the law and the rest of the community since no one in the village of Corbeil would speak to them because of the girls. Their mother even claimed that she wished that they were dead. Yet the Dion's and their other children did not say no to the mansion or the car or the clothes and the food that they were provided with the food through the money earned by their daughters. Quite the contrary. They felt perfectly entitled to take advantage of it all. Furthermore, Olivia Dion was a trustee for a bank account set up in the sister's name, which had millions of dollars which he used and abused as he saw fit. Cecile would have more to say on the subject in an autobiography written several years later, The Family Secrets, The Dion Quintuplets' Own Story. In my heart and in my eight-year-old mind, which already felt older, I unconsciously let a certain amount of guilt and profound sadness build up within me that gripped me physically as well as emotionally. I tried to understand why my family was so unhappy. Gradually, I realized that this entire trauma stemmed up from my birth and that of my other twin siblings. To escape the anxiety-provoking family atmosphere, the girls were fortunately able to go on promotional tours in connection with their films and their theme park. But once they returned home, things reverted back to chaos and they started to fear their father more and more. When they turned 18, through mutual agreement, they decided to leave their family mansion to take their real step into adult life. The girls maintained a very strong bond that would endure during these difficult years. In fact, they continued to dress and comb their hair the same way. They even rented an apartment together in Calendar. Initially, they tried to restart their movie careers, but by the time they were considered too old and the excitement of their early years at Quintland had faded. The perfect sugarcoating image of the model little girls was no longer relevant. The only time that they managed to appear on TV was during a documentary shown on a Canadian television called There'll Always Be an England, but their potion was completely edited out. The Quintland magic no longer seemed to work. 
With the advent of television and a drastic shift in people's habits and forms of entertainment, the memory of the quintuplets slowly started to fall into obscurity. They were now considered to be an outdated image of an old-timey and syrupy past that no longer interested anyone. Now deprived of their fortune and their fame, abandoned by everyone, the five sisters were forced to work to survive. Suffering from various mental health issues as well as epilepsy, this period of transition was all the more difficult for the sisters as they suddenly went from being the spotlight to being cast in the darkest shadows. Perhaps because of their lack of experience and the sheltered world in which they spent almost half their lives, the young women appeared to be quite immature to everyone they met. They were naive, gullible, and very inexperienced when it came to personal relationships, especially with the opposite sex. To protect themselves, they retreated into their little bubble and developed an almost sociopathic kind of behavior. They underwent extensive therapy in order to heal themselves. Marie began nursing studies and married Florian Hull, one of her colleagues with whom she had three boys. The marriage turned out to be rocky and dysfunctional, which sent her into long periods of depression. She died on February 27, 1970 at the age of 36 in Montreal, presumably due to an internal brain hemorrhage. Emily, who for a short time wanted to become a nun, entered into a convent at St. Agathe de Mons, where she died in 1954 following an epileptical seizure. Indeed, her death was quite sudden. During a devastating attack, she fell to the ground with her face buried in a pillow. As she was unable to pick herself up, she died of suffocation. Her body was found the next morning by the residents in the convent. Annette, who married Germaine Allard in 1956, also had long periods of depression and was diagnosed being bipolar. She also sank into alcoholism for many years and went into detox several times at a halfway house in Montreal. Cécile married Philippe Langlois, a history professor, and gave birth to five children, four boys and a girl. Yvonne, who had been traumatized by the memory of sexual abuse from their father, developed a fear for boys and men in general. She made the decision to never get married and moved in with Cécile after she got married. Their parents never attempted to keep in touch with them, nor with the rest of their siblings, and their disavowal would only add to their unhappiness. To pay tribute to Emily, the twin who died tragically, and to shed light on their story, Cecile, Annette, Murray, and Yvonne published an autobiography in 1965 called We Were Five, in a candid account in which they denounced everything that they had experienced and the greed of those who had surrounded them, in particular Dr. Alan Defoe, whom they accused of having made a fortune off them. The book enjoyed great success in French Canada. The success, however, was bittersweet because for those who were nostalgic for the Quintland years, this behind-the-scenes story was somewhat delusioning and threatened to shatter the image of charm and innocence created and projected by the quintuplets at the time. Their father, Oliva Dion, died at the age 76 in 1979. At his funeral, they saw their mother and the rest of their siblings for the last time. Any ties were now forever broken even if they still continued to live off the money earned from any of the merchandise associated with Quintland. In 1993, Quebec producer Christian Duguay learned of their story through old news clippings. Intrigued by their unusual personal experience, he wanted to find out all he could about their existence, to know if they were still alive and what had become of them. His plan was to produce a film tracing their biography from their birth on the farm in Corbeil up until the success of Quintland and Hollywood. To that end, he relentlessly searched for any trace of them in telephone directories. First, he found Annette, who was quite shy and only granted him a few minutes on the phone. However, the three other surviving sisters were also told about the film project. Initially, they were resent, but eventually they agreed to work with the producer and his casting crew. All throughout the filming of The Million Dollar Babies, they came to the set almost every day and spoke with the actors and actresses and gave their opinion with a great deal of shyness and reserve. 
This brought back their old memories of the days at the studios in Los Angeles, when they were still childhood stars. Unlike what people believed, they detested being under the camera's lights, but they had no other choice but to do what they were told by the adults, explained Christian on their behalf. The film came out in 1994 and was shown in the early evening on CBS, Quebec's affiliate station, and on the French channel France 2. The release of the film The Million Dollar Babies created a renewed interest in the forgotten story of the Dion sisters and introduced them to a whole new generation. The film received positive reviews. After some encouragement by editor Pierre Burton, the Dion sisters decided to take on a second autobiography titled The Family Secrets, the Dion Quintuplet's own story, which was released in 1995. This collectively written account drew on their memories of childhood and adolescence. This second opus concentrated more on the post-Quintland period, on their lives as adult women and the difficulties they had to face. Once again, the book was a smashing success and was even translated into 12 languages. Six years after the book was released, the government of the province of Ontario finally agreed to pay $4 million in damages and interest to the four surviving sisters as compensation for the many years of exploitation they endured at the Quintlin theme park. Yvonne died two years later as a result of colon cancer at the age 67. According to her final wishes, her money was given to support charitable works for childhood mental disorders and child protection. The home where they were born in Corbeil has since become a museum that has been furnished and decorated in the style of the 1930s with photos of the little girls and their toys. A souvenir shop also sells items in their likeness, such as telephone protectors, keychains, calendars, vintage soap bars, and boxes of cookies. Having been deprived of love for so long and never having the chance to mourn their turbulent childhood, Annette and Cecile explained the impact that all these events had on their romantic, marital, and family lives. They hoped that parents today might become more aware of the dangers they may await their children, especially on social media. Cecile had this to say, As soon as I hear that a woman has given birth to triplets or quadruplets, I get scared. I tell myself that the government is going to shower her with gifts and later force her to do something foolish. Without a doubt, people today have more means to defend themselves and stand up for their rights. But that wasn't the case for our parents who were mere farmers. What a child needs is love and attention more than all the toys and money in the world. Now, the sole survivors of a long history, Annette and Cecile, never leave each other's side. Both have been widowed for many years and share an apartment in Montreal where they spend their days peacefully. On May 28, 2021, they celebrated their 87th birthday together and by extension, that of their three other deceased sisters whom they say are still alive all around them. We were five and will always be. We're at the end of our show for today, so feel free to listen to the other shows on the podcast and take five seconds to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. It's really important to us. You can also subscribe to the next episodes and follow us on Facebook to suggest new ones. Thank you and see you soon. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 